0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're going to be kind of getting into it. We spent the first two weeks uh, laying a bit of a foundation. We talked about biblical worldviews and we talked about, you know, thinking biblically so that we're not deceived and why we need to know the grand story. And so the next path or the next part, now part three, we're, I'm just going to begin telling the story and that's really what I want to accomplish. I thought I'd be able to just kind of give a brief overview telling the story in one message. (laughs) No, that that did not work out so well. Uh, But we are going to tell the story as a story. So I might say things and raise questions that you might say, oh, go deeper on that, or we need to know more about that. While I tell the story, we're not going to be going deeper on, on different topics. The Bible does that a lot, and that's sometimes why people miss the grand story and the narrative as it flows, is because with you know, we get a lot of extra text, right? A lot of extras to the stories, which is awesome. And obviously, the, you know, me telling it in my simplistic way is not going to replace your need. I would really encourage you, if you haven't done so already, I know of people that are right now starting, that, that have started in Genesis and are moving their way through Scripture trying to get it done. I would encourage you, if you've never done that, read the Bible front to back, cover to cover. Cover to cover, get to know the Word of God for yourself. Get to know God for yourself. Not just by your feelings or not just by what you hear me say or someone else says, and certainly not by what you hear people in the culture saying about God. Get to know Him for yourself. He's unchanging. As He's revealed Himself in the Word, He is this way. So get to know them for yourself, get to know the story. But we are going to work through the grand story. But I thought I would give you know, a bit of a, uh, an assignment for those that like assignments. Is there anyone that's in school age still? Is there anyone? Oh, there's a bunch. Okay, you guys like assignments for sure. Anyone that's out of school? <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to school? No, I'm just kidding. This, uh, this will be much more fun than that. But anyways, we talked about the big question your worldview answers. These are some of the core questions of, uh, of, that each one of us as human beings have. So they also make up your worldview, or the lens through which you view reality, right? So we're, I'll challenge you to kind of look at that origin, purpose, morality, destiny, even if you want to write down just those titles. See how many answers you can find in the portion of the story that we go through today. So I'll try to highlight them a little bit, but I'm not going to highlight them as points on the PowerPoint, so you'll just have to see. And again, if you don't want to, that you don't have to, but I thought it would be fun. This is how we learn and we study for ourselves and we learn for ourselves. And then at the end, we'll also challenge us all to, to apply, if these things are true, if these things are so, how does that change the way that I live today? Because that's the proper way to read the Word, right? All right, so we have those questions. You're all clear on what we're gonna do there? But we won't talk about worldview anymore throughout the rest of the story. Now we're just going to talk about, uh, we're going to start in creation. Actually, there's one more thing. Everyone likes a pop quiz, right? <laughs> no, I hear. <laughs> that was great. That's the best. Yeah, I don't like them either. But I'm the one leading, so I already know the answer. So let's see if you guys get it. You remember seeing this? It was two weeks ago. That's a long time ago. But do you remember it? Sort of? Okay. All right. So. One of those is a naturalistic worldview. One of them is a biblical worldview, and one of them represents a dualistic or transcendental worldview. Right? So one of them is dualis- dualism. One of them is natural. One of them is biblical. So starting left is 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 uh, left to right. Okay. If which one is the biblical worldview? One, two, or three? That was awesome. Okay. Which one is the natural? And which one is dualism? Well, this is going to be easy for you guys. Okay, then let's start in the beginning. Creation. Remember, there's four main chapters. We're going to look at creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There's five main promises or covenants. Well, there's more than that. But there's five main ones that we're going to really park on. And all of it reveals one hero throughout the story. One hero. Okay, so those are the main components, and we're going to start here in creation. In the beginning. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Everything we see, everything that is seen, everything that is unseen. So we have the heavens, and in the heavens we have heavenly beings. So everything that is unseen that we cannot see, and everything that is seen, God created the heavens and the earth. But it's important to note something, and that is our story begins with creation, right? Oops, I forgot to take Jesus off of there. Oh, that sounds bad. But anyhow, that was an accident. <laughs> well, you know what? Jesus is always the right answer, so it's okay that he stays on there. <laughs> but we're going to add. I told you I was going to add to the timeline as we go through, uh, and Jesus is always the right answer, so I didn't make a mistake. That was intentional. <clears throat> but our story and the grand story begins at creation. God's story has no beginning. He exists outside of time. So he's different. God is uncreated. He's a creator, but he's uncreated, he's eternal. So he's very different than us, but in the beginning of this grand story, God, this eternal God, creates the heavens and the earth. Now in the first verse, we don't know exactly what he's up to, but we're starting to see some clues already because even the word used for God is Elohim, which is plural. So we start learning things about God right from the opening verses of the first chapter, and we learn that God is eternal. We learn that he is a creator. We learn that he is one, but also plural, but we're not quite sure how that works yet. We're learning things about who God is. And so when we go a little further, we're gonna start to see what his purposes in creation were. And what his main purpose was is to create a people Humans after his own likeness, so that he could enter into a loving relationship with them, that they could love him and glorify him. He wanted a people that would choose to love him and glorify him. And so, in the opening chapters of Scripture, what we see is it's almost like it's it's like a funnel. From from verses one and two, it's like God creates the heavens and the earth, the universe, and it says the earth was formless and without and void. Right. And it was, uh, darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is just hovering there. So, here we look, it's large, the the universe is created, the galaxies are created, stars are created. It's large, it's big. And then as we see the the creation story unfold, we're going to find he does this. And it kind of narrows down and centers on to the pinnacle of his creation. And so that's where we start, and on day one, in verse three, we're going to see he creates light. So God creates light, and we see lots of, you know, we learn about God's character in here, and he creates beauty, and he creates life, and he creates variety. But the first thing he does is he creates light, and we have day and night. So he's creating this creation. It's all coming down like this to this special creation called human beings created in his image. But on day one, he speaks, and it was so. And I want to highlight that piece. It's repeated over and over and over again because if you get that, you'll learn to really hold on to some of the promises, well, all the promises of God, and you'll learn why they all have to come true. When God speaks, there's always something that happens, and it was so. You know, I wish we had time. I'm, I'm gonna come back. Like I said, we're gonna tell the story, and then we'll come back and really dive into all the applications. But there, are, there is so much application in the beginning, because now you start looking at God speaks, and it was so. Has anyone in in here ever struggled with, with feeling that they were forgiven or knowing that they were forgiven when they asked for forgiveness from God? Anyone? Am I the only one? Okay, there's a whole handful of you. Some of you don't struggle with that, and God bless you, I'm glad. But for us that do, this is the same God when he speaks. So when he says, when you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look at the formula. God speaks, and it was so. God speaks, and it was so. It's guaranteed. That's an incredible thing. I am very glad that we don't have that power. Amen? Wouldn't that be terrible if everything you said, it was so? At least it would be for me. All right. Day two comes along. So now we have day one, light and uh, light is created, so we have night and day separating, right? They separate. Darkness is night, light is day. Day two, we have the seas, and the skies, and there's separation between the seas and the skies. And we see again, verses 6 and 8, God speaks, and it was so. God speaks, and the material universe is being created, and it is being organized from a chaotic state into a very ordered state. He's an artist. Think about an artist. Try to imagine as we're going through this. Try to imagine an artist beginning the most beautiful painting. You know, and in the beginning, you might not recognize what it is. Right? It looks like splashes of color here and there, and you can't see. It looks chaotic. But as they continue with the artistry, it begins to take shape, and, and out, <clears throat> out of all the work comes something very beautiful. And that's exactly what we see with God. We learn that He is a God of beauty, and He is a creator. Day three, we find the plants and the trees. Okay, so now we have plants and trees and vegetation, so that begins to cover the earth. And all of this is in preparation for his final pinnacle of creation. And so we move on, and now you get a bit of a contrast. What you'll see is, you know, verses 1 and 2 talks about he creates the heavens and the earth. Big. It's macro. And then day 1, you see him start to, now he's taking it and creating, he's shaping it. And so you'll find day one mirrors. The first three days, he's kind of setting the stage. And then the next three days, he completes it. So day one, he creates light, and light, night and day. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the seasons. You see how those work together. They complete each other. Day five, we see fish and birds, seas and skies. You see that correlation? We see it coming down like a funnel, right? He starts big, and he's just coming down like this, and he's filling up this earth, and he's creating. Interesting that we see the first command, which we'll also find with human beings in just a moment, and that is, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And I love that. So even as God is creating, you know, all living things that have breath in their lungs, his desire, he, he gives them the ability to create too. And this is something that is, is core to who God is. You know, in in so many religions or so many different stories or so many uh, patterns of thinking, you know, you have people that hoard power, right? We always, we don't like people that hoard power. God isn't actually like that. He actually shares his image. He shares power, which is an incredible thing. And I don't fully understand why he does it with us, especially considering how we abuse it. But God is a creator and he actually gives Even the animals and human beings, the ability to also create or procreate. That's absolutely incredible. And when you think about the implications of that with human beings, you know, we would say at least, you know, sometimes we say, well, God creates things, but he can create things that are eternal. They have a beginning but no end. But he actually gave us that power too as human beings. Have you ever thought about that? Because when a human being is made, their soul has no end. That's an incredible power that God gave to human beings. But I digress. Let's go back to the story. And in day six, we find it's split up into two parts. So the first part is verse 24 and 25. And God creates, it says, all the creepy crawlies, the animals, the livestock, everything on land, right? Because he's already done the birds of the sky and the heavens. And he's done the fish in the sea. And now he's going to create all of the animals, everything with air on land he makes. And at the end of this... At the end of this, this is what he said, and God saw it, and it was what? Good. So God creates the heavens and the earth, the light, the the, the day and the night. He creates the seas and the sky. He creates the land and the vegetation. He creates, uh, he goes on to create the sun and the moon and the stars and the seasons. He creates the fish and the birds. He creates all of the animals, the ones you love, especially cats. Cows were, (laughs) Lauren's not even here, but cows were part of the curse. I'm kidding. They have beef. They were obviously good too, right? We can eat them and they're wonderful. But anyways, he he made all of that. It's very important that you get this. He made all of that and what was it? Good. It wasn't broken. We look at fear of climate change and things aren't working and, and there's natural disasters and things, you know, people's lives are destroyed. God creates all of this. By speaking, God speaks, and it was so, and something so vast and so big and so complicated, the fine-tuning is so delicate, it, it is impossible to have just, you know, popped into existence on its own by random, you know, bumping atoms and stuff. It's impossible. He did all of that by speaking, and it was so, and he holds it all together by the word of his power. This is the God we're introduced to in the beginning of the Bible. This is whose story it's all about, the, God's grand story. And in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. God is still in the business of holding his creation together and it was good. But he's not done day six. Day six is only halfway done. Verses 26 and 27. Now we're going to get to the pinnacle of his creation. Let us make man, let us make man. So then God, remember, God is one, but Elohim is plural. So we know that, we're not quite sure how this works, because we have, we have a hard time thinking of me, myself, and I. Maybe that's how it works. We don't know. But, but here we're, we're introduced to this idea that God is one, but there's a plural sense to him that he's more than one, but we don't know how that works yet, because he hasn't told us. But Elohim says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And this is where we get something really interesting. So, like, who are we? We are, the first thing we find out, we are God's special creation. And I covered this, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I kind of alluded to that idea of Mount Everest, but I want to go back there. I mean, can you imagine Mount Everest just dissolving or something happens and it cracks? There's an earthquake. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't think it is. But it cracks and crumbles and falls apart. I think the, the earth would probably mourn right? Or, or we worry about, you know, sea levels rising and it's taking in land or we lose natural things. It's, you, can you imagine if the moon disappeared? I mean, that wouldn't actually work, but just think about how precious this would be. And yet of all the things that were created, only you and human beings were created as his special possession. All of the rest was setting the stage for him to bring humans onto the earth. That's what he was setting the stage for. He made it for us. It's incredible. And we actually find that out in scripture because he says, with Adam and Eve, he gave it to them as a gift. That's a wild thought to think Elohim, God, creates all of this. It's all his. And then he gives it and he says, Here, here, you take it. And he gives us image. Anyway, so we're created in the image of God. We're a special creation. Day six. God makes Adam and Eve. Now that's in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, sometimes you'll, you'll notice, well, chapter 1, he creates Adam and Eve, and then chapter 2, he's creating Adam and Eve again. Remember, think of it like this. Genesis 1, 1 to 2 is going like this, and then you have 3 all the way to 31. It's just fine-tuning, and now you get on to chapter 2, and chapter 2 begins to really show God entering into his creation. Hands-on craftsman creating man out of the dust of the ground making a garden for them. He makes the most beautiful garden. I wonder what the Garden of Eden will be like, because it'll be unlike anything we've seen, and yet there is really beautiful places in the world. Amen? I mean, it's hard to see sometimes in fallout here, at least on the fields. But the the, the color changing on the leaves is, is really nice, and our skies, of course. But think of like a paradise place. God makes them a paradise called the Garden of Eden. But he makes Adam and Eve. That's where we're at. They're in the image of God. They are God's special creation. But then we find something here, right here. So in in Genesis 2, he creates Adam first, right? So we'll just say he's created Adam. In between creating Adam and Eve, we find the only time in the creation account where God says it is not good. So he's created everything, and it was what? Good. And now we find in 2.18 that it is not good for man to be alone. And there you see part of God's heart being expressed, his desire for us to have belonging, relationship, and companionship. It is not good for human beings to be alone, and so God moves on to create Eve uh, out of Adam, and he creates a companion, a helper, which is quite amazing, right? So that is, once he created Adam and Eve, he said, behold, it was what? Very good. So we have five times during the creation story he says it was good. Then we have one time he said it is not good. He still had more to give mankind. He wanted partnership and relationship. And when that was complete, he looked at everything and said it was? Very good. That's very important for us to understand. Because I sometimes look at the world and I don't think that it's very good. when I was looking at videos of you know, Hamas coming into Israel and yelling Allah Akbar over and over again and shaking their fists and firing guns, it's hard to think that the world was very good. When I try to imagine what that would be like, that kind of terror, if it ever would hit here, what that would feel like, what it would be like, the desperation I would have if, if my kids were missing, And I'm at the police station, and they're busy. They're trying to defend us, and I'm trying to find out if they've seen, if anyone knows where they are, and I don't know if they're dead or alive, if they've been kidnapped. I don't know. So there's a problem with the world, but when we start in the beginning, we find that that problem was not with God. When He created it, it was good, and then it was very good. It was very good. And that's important for us to understand. Okay, so, day seven quickly. God rests. Now, it's important for you to know he didn't rest in the sense of uh, because he was tired. He never tires. The scripture tells us that this God is all-powerful. He never tires. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always awake, always actively in control, always working in his creation, but he rests from creating. He's done making things. He has now set things in order. He's done creating, and now he's going to rest. And, and this God, think about this. I mean, the story tells us he exists outside. In the beginning, God. So God was already there, but then he creates the heavens and the earth. But then we find him in the garden walking with his creation. So God that exists outside of his creation. This isn't The idea of, you know, an an ant farm in in an aquarium, you know, when you're kind of looking in the outside? It's not that. It would be like creating an ant farm and stepping inside of the ant farm and living with the ants. That's a wild thought. That's what God did. So He made creation, He entered His creation because He wanted to enjoy relationship with His creation. Especially the special creation created in His image, and that is us, Adam and Eve at the time. So he gave them purpose and work. And, and I find this really fascinating. God, right away as he begins to put them to work, and he's not like, he's not like what would come along later on, which is the other gods, that, that false religions that would worship, and they would demand, uh, uh, you know, they would sit there and do nothing, and they would call everyone to be their slaves. Everyone else would have to do the work for them. God doesn't do that. God is at work in creating, God is at work in creation, and he invites Adam and Eve to join him in his work. God loves work. Work is a good thing. It's right there in the beginning of creation and God gives them work. He gives them purpose. He wants them to enjoy a relationship with him. He wants them to also work the ground and he gives them a charge. He says, you are to subdue the earth, right? So you're to work the ground, subdue it, grow things, make gardens, make culture. You're to have dominion over all the animals, over the earth. He gives them rule, Like think about that. This God that exists outside creates these little finite beings and and he gives them, he shares his rule with them. He shares his power and authority with them and he charges them to be fruitful and to multiply. God gave them great amounts of purpose. He wanted them to love him and he wanted them to give him glory throughout the entire earth. It was perfect. It was paradise. But remember, God wanted a people that were like him, but he wanted those that would choose to love him. You see, God understood that love had to be a choice. It had to be given as a choice, because if it's forced, it isn't love. So he had to give Adam and Eve a choice, a legitimate choice, to love him or to reject him. But I mean, guys, I mean, people that say, oh, it's not a fair choice. It's a fair choice. He, he literally says, I give you all the, the plants and the animals. I've given you dominion and rule. I've given you purpose. I've created all of this for you. I've made the perfect garden for you. It's paradise. And he says, all of the trees that are bearing fruit, everything you can see, it's all yours for food. Enjoy it. But there was one tree that he said, there had to be a choice, there was one tree, and he said, of that tree, you shall not touch it or eat of it, for on the day you touch it, you will surely die. God gave them a choice, but he was very clear on the warning, and he gave them more than enough incentive not to touch the tree. I mean, he's walking with them, imagine walking with God. Have you ever tried to imagine what that was like? What does that even mean? Did they see him? I don't understand. I mean, no one's seen God and lived. I don't understand. Did they see him in, in the garden? So he gives them a choice. Right and wrong, God defines right. He says, this is what I'm asking you to do. I invite you to love me, to give me glory, to multiply, spread across the world. This is what I'm asking you to do. He gives them a mandate to create culture. But then he also says what is wrong. Do not violate my commands, for the moment you do, the consequence will be death. He's judge. So Genesis two sixteen to 17, and you see this, right? Well, that's not it. It's definitely Genesis 2, 24. But why don't we touch it anyhow? So he gives them all this purpose. We'll get to that. We'll get, he gives them all this purpose, and then he performs, by the way, the very first wedding ceremony ever, God performs. Can you imagine, I don't know, like, I don't know who officiated your wedding. Can you imagine God officiating your wedding? Like, would that be incredible? God, Elohim, officiates the very first wedding, your wedding? This just adds to the whole, like, talk about having every possible advantage to say yes, because God's desire was never for them to disobey. He didn't want them to experience the curse. He wanted them to experience life with Him, and that's all they knew in the beginning. But Adam and Eve, they're walking, they're naked and ashamed. The Lord commanded them, saying, Surely you shall eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so think about this. Here we are in creation, and up until this point, creation is good, humans are very good. Imagine this. Imagine never feeling rejection or abandonment. Let that sink in. Imagine never being rejected or feeling abandoned. Imagine never wondering how you fit in with the people around you and if they'll accept you. Imagine knowing no shame. Imagine there's never been a break in any of your relationships but you're seen and you see others exactly the way they are. That's creation. They knew God, his blessing, and they knew life. But the story has only just begun. Now we enter the second chapter, and we hit the fall, the entrance of sin, which results in death being spread, first through humankind, and then spreads through all creation. And we see that happening right away is in Genesis 3. So we've kind of covered Genesis 1 and 2. And by the way, I would encourage you to go and just read it verse for verse this week. Just read it and soak. See how many of those, you know the questions I asked before? See how many answers you can find in there. Especially the one that says, who is God? See how many things you can find out about who God is. His attributes and character in his word. It'll blow your mind an exercise like that. Anyways. Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? That's a key question he asks. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now who is the serpent? You know, it's interesting, we have, yeah, he's the devil. So the serpent is Satan, right? So that's the serpent, he's Satan. And the scripture doesn't tell us a lot about his origin. So there's a story that goes on in the heavenly realms that that we're not given a lot of details of in here. We're told what we need to know, but we're given clues. There's, There's hints in the prophets of who this Satan was and where he came from. But here we have the serpent coming into the garden and the serpent is tempting Eve. starts with Eve and says, Did God actually say... The serpent is challenging God's rule. Well, when we look a little back, you know, we look a little through, or sorry, we go forward and look at the prophets, we're going to find two uh, prophecies, one against the king of Tyre, and then we're also going to find one against the king of Babylon. And within there, we're going to find Isaiah and Ezekiel comparing those kings prophetically to Satan. And so we find a little bit about what we know about him, that he's a cherub, that he was an angel... That he was in heaven with God, that he was beautiful and had majesty, but he wanted all of the glory for himself. And we find this cherub leads a rebellion in the heavenly realms, but we're never given a clear, succinct account in a story like we have with the rest of Scripture. But I'll show you what the pieces that we do have. In Ezekiel 28, it says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, you were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. There we, go. Oops. there we go, until unrighteousness was found in you, and in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. You sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. And that one was written to the king of Tyre. He's not Satan himself, but you see that what Ezekiel is doing is comparing him, and then we learn little, little pieces of information about who this serpent is. This serpent who is called the devil, later on in Revelation, is called the great dragon. Isaiah speaks of this this king, or, or sorry, this cherub or this angel like this. He says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And you see, there was a name of honor bestowed upon this angel, son of the dawn, day star. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars, I will set my throne on high, I will make myself like the most high. So Satan was cast down from heaven, and we find his entrance into the grand story. So we're not given all the details of what happened and how long that took and where, but we are given the, like, it's scattered in the prophets, and then when you come back to the beginning, we find him, his entrance into the garden which Ezekiel referenced, and he's in the form of a serpent. And he's doing what? He led a rebellion in heaven, and now we find the very first thing he's doing with mankind is he's trying to lead the second rebellion. So he's whispering to Eve, did God really say? And that line is at the core of what causes so many of us to continue to fall into sin. That challenging phrase or challenging question is at the core of why many of us continue to struggle and fall into sin. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Did God really say? God says, I will never tempt you or allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to endure. Did God really say? God said, I will answer your prayers. When we go to pray, we hear, did God really say? It is the same line over and over again. The devil has been doing it from the beginning. He is challenging the authority, the power, the sovereignty, and the rule of God Almighty, Elohim, Yahweh. Did God really say? So how does Eve respond? Well, we find in Genesis 3, 2-3, Eve responds, this is what God said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's not ignorant You know, sometimes you say, like, the devil made me do it, or maybe I didn't know. We may eat of the the fruit in the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So was Eve aware of the commands of what right and wrong was? Was she aware? Yes. Was she aware of the consequences of rebellion against God? But was she going to trust God? God's law, or was she going to become a law in and of herself? That is the question. Satan replies, You will not die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that an interesting thing? You will be like God. Let's back up a little bit. In Genesis 1:26 to 27, whose image did God create us in? Who were we already like? You see the craftiness of the deception? He's offering an alternate path to what they already were. They already were the image of God. It didn't need to be more like God. And in fact, does sin make you more like God or make you less like God? Less. He's holy and pure without blemish. Never makes a mistake. They were like God. The deception was to become more like God. He actually, once they sinned, they became less like God. There was now separation. Because God, you think he's all-knowing. Is he all-knowing? He is. I mean, he's all-powerful, but isn't it an interesting thought to think of? He has never sinned, so he's never experienced that. There are things we've experienced that God has not experienced. Wrap your mind around that. Because he does not sin he is never tempted to do wrong, ever. It's wild. We're image bearers. So Eve did what many of us would do, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Eve did what many of us would continue to do, and she chose to eat of the fruit. That's what she did. And that's what we see in there. In the story, she eats of the fruit. Oh, there we go. And right away, this is what happens. We have the fall. The fall has begun. So Eve eats from the fruit, and her eyes are opened. And has she become like God? No, she has actually become less like God. She has now experienced something that God has not experienced. He is not sinful like we are. He's different. He's set apart. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't that amazing? And he's calling us to be more like him, but back to the story. Now we're at fall. We're right in the beginning here on this timeline, right? Jesus is still on there because he's the hero of the story. Totally did that on purpose. But we're right at the fall, and this is where it's begun. Their eyes are opened. Right away as they realize that they're naked, they begin to cover themselves with clothes. So there's separation, not only with God, but they have now separation with others. And by the way, with our own understanding, I'm, I'm glad we have the separation of clothes still. I mean, this would be a really awkward morning if we did not, right? So there's certain things that... But in the Bible, before the fall, they didn't even need that. They were naked and unashamed. But now sin had entered, death had entered, and like a virus, it began to infect all of creation. Death was now in creation. Death was in humankind. Death was in all of the birds and the animals. It was not just humankind that was affected by the fall. Sin broke. It put a a, a fracture in creation. So the problem, sin and death spread throughout creation. That problem was brought on by who? That is not good, right? God created everything and it was? Good. God created mankind and they were what? Very good. Very good. Now mankind had sinned and they had brought in death. And this is where we see the fall. So he had created the heavens and the earth. He had given everything on earth to his special creation, man, as a gift. He's given them every opportunity to say yes. But he gives them a legitimate choice and they choose to sin bringing upon The curse and the consequence of their sin, which was death. And now we enter the third act. I know in the beginning you say, there's four chapters and we just think they got to be split up equally, right? (laughs) There's not. Remember we've called this story, it's a redemption story. (laughs) This is a redemption story. And so what you'll find is even of the four chapters, three of them are like, we're given little pieces of information on obviously the effects of the fall we see throughout, but we're going to enter into redemption and redemption is the largest part of this book by far. And I love it because God's going to reveal how he's going to undo this curse. Because remember, there's things we need to know about God. I mean, God, he's holy. He's perfect and complete. He's a judge. He's just. He doesn't lie. So if God has warned them, the day you touch of it, you shall surely die. What's the consequence of their sin? Death. So now that is at war with this desire to love them and enter into a relationship with them for eternity. Can you see that? Because mankind is sin bringing on death. He wants an eternal loving relationship with them. We see this is the war that's at play. And we're wondering how will this whole thing be undone? So we're entering the main act, God's plan to redeem creation. Now God being sovereign, we're going to find seeds of it, right? God being sovereign already knew in order to create people that could choose to love him. He had to give them a legitimate choice. He already knew the frailty of mankind because they aren't God. And he knew they would sin. So from the foundations of the earth, he already had the plan for redemption. The plan to undo the curse, to defeat death, to eliminate sin, and to end with a people that he could call his own for all eternity. But we don't know what the plan is in the beginning. We just get a bit of a seed, and this is where we're going to get the first promise. Remember, four chapters, five promises. Now, we're right in, in, in uh, chapter 3 here, chapter 3, verse 15, and he's in the middle of a sandwich. He's describing what the curse is, right? How it's going to affect work and childbearing and pain and all that in the creation. And right in the middle, he gives the promised seed. And remember, God speaks and what? God speaks and it is so. So now we see God planting the first seed of redemption. But it's not not fulfilled right away. But the first seed he speaks is in Genesis 3.15. And this is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we know, okay, so there's going to be a war between this serpent and mankind. But out of that, the serpent is going to bruise one of Eve's children's head, but then from that place, he's going to get bruised. That man is going to turn around and crush the serpent. So we know part of the identity of, or part of the identity or part of God's plan of redemption is he's going to raise up a serpent crusher. We don't know the name yet. I mean, now my timeline kind of maybe gave it away. So I know some of you are in deep suspense there and now I've given it away. I feel very bad. Spoiler alert Jesus is the serpent crusher. Ah, how do you know? they are like, oh, t- tell me when you're done this message series. I already know how it ends. Okay. Right. But we have, the, the seed is planted. There's a serpent crusher coming. So wh- we don't know who he is, but we know he's going to be born of Eve. And somehow he's going to have the power or the ability or something to undo the effects of the curse and to defeat the serpent. So you can imagine, like, we have the full Bible. Now just try to pull yourself back, you know, thousands of years, and try to understand how you're interpreting that. Right? God's unfolding his grand story. There's a solution, though, to the problem that mankind has brought of sin and death, and that solution is the serpent crusher. So, at this point in the story, we have sin and death are in creation. Adam and Eve, God has now removed them from the garden. That's part of their punishment. He's removed them from the garden of Eden from the tree of life, lest they live forever. They're under the curse. They're now experiencing pain. They will now experience shame. They're experiencing death, and the wait begins. Who will the serpent crusher be? And what we find right in chapter four, we're going to find Adam knows Eve, They procreate, and Cain is born. He's the oldest. Cain and Abel. We get the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain is born, and Eve already wonders, I have have begotten a man, the Lord. And she wonders, could this be the serpent crusher? Right? God has created, has given us Cain. Will Cain be the serpent crusher? Surely Cain will be the serpent crusher. And we find out in a very short period of time within God's story that Cain not only is not the serpent crusher, he is our very first murderer in scripture. Because jealousy, he's jealous, and there's pride, and there's jealousy, and that causes him to be anger, and he strikes out and murders. And we see the effects of sin, how it has brought death. Death, it has distorted man's desires. It has distorted our actions. So, we continue on. So, carrying on from here, we're going we're gonna to move from Adam now to Noah. And I really find this is neat because, remember, uh, we're, we're now moving into redemption. So, that's the Edenic covenant. That's promise number one, right? That's been given. We're still way over here on this side. Now, we have redemption has started, but we're not sure what the plan of redemption is yet we just know it's going to happen because when God speaks, it is what? It is so. So So we know that. God spoke it. It is so. We're just trying to figure out what it is, right? So this is where they are in here, and now it's going to skip forward a bunch of generations, and we're going to move through 10 from Adam right to to Noah, and you'll see Easter eggs. Okay, so from the 10 names of the generations listed in Scripture— So even before they knew that it was going to be Jesus, okay? So remember, this God gives it to Moses, well, it's really around 2,000 years after it happened. But even before they know it's Jesus, look at even how God is showing them his plan for redemption through the names of all the main men within the generational line. So we have from Adam, his name is Seed. So Seed appointed mortal, Adam, the first Adam, Sorrow brought in sin, then the blessed one shall come down, the second Adam. The commencement, when he comes, his death shall bring lamentation. There will be sorrow again, but ultimately, you know, bringing, bringing through the culmination of to bring rest. And here we see, even in the names, God is kind of revealing how he's going to pull out this plan of redemption, but you won't even see this. I don't even know if anyone could have seen this until afterwards with hindsight. These are those Easter eggs that you go and, you know, you watch the movie for the second time, and you're like, how did I miss that? Yeah, that's this right here. Beautiful, isn't it? But anyhow, the last one, to bring rest, that is the character we're going to focus on now. His name is Noah. Noah's name means to bring rest. So now we get to Noah, and is Noah going to be the serpent crusher? Are we going to see the plan of redemption? In Genesis 6, are we going to see the plan of redemption? Because through those 10 generations that we see from Adam, what we see is humankind spreads as does wickedness and sin, said murder is rampant, sin is rampant, brokenness is rampant, and we find, oh yeah, that's Noah entering on the stage here, just so you You can see in there, right, Noah, it's about there on the timeline, by the way, don't hold me to the timeline, you know, I did the best I could to try to take what the genealogies describe and then try to put things in the right order to give you an idea, but (laughs) this is not to scale, this is, you know, the best with my eyes that I could do. All right, Noah enters. We're about, what, a third into here from where we are? We're at the end there. Okay, that's Noah. Noah's coming in here. And look at, look at what God says about the earth and about humanity when Noah is introduced. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. What are we learning about God? You see, some people can understand that maybe the God who created everything, he's impersonal, right? He's big, he's impersonal though. Like he exists outside, he just kind of sets things in motion. That's not the way God, Elohim, Yahweh is described in scripture. We find God grieves, he feels, he thinks, he's personal, he's relational, yet without sin. That's the marvel we don't understand because we only know sin, right? But it says, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So is Noah going to be part of God bringing, you know, God's redemption for mankind? Right? Maybe, maybe that's what's going to happen. For I have, you know, Noah's going to be, he's going to start over. If, if God's going to wipe out everything but keep Noah alive, maybe in a start over we're going to see God's redemptive plan at work. So before we get there, I just want to point out Ezekiel 18, 32, because at this point in the story, we haven't had all of God's character revealed. That gets revealed throughout the Word. But you're like, God sent a flood. I mean, that's a lot of death. And it broke his heart. Look what Ezekiel 18 says. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. His desire always is that people turn from their sins in faith and turn to him. From the very beginning, that's always been his desire And he has made every way possible for human beings to do so. Just as we see him doing in the garden. And that we're going to get on tomorrow as we see his unfolding plan of redemption. You're going to see the great lengths that God has gone to to draw people to himself. But we go back to the story. Genesis 7. Rain begins to fall on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Rain begins to fall in the earth. So now we have the flood. And you're wondering, if, if you're wondering why it's so far away from Noah, because Noah lived 900 years. It's a long time, right? Can you imagine living that long? I am glad. Right now with the aches and pains I have, I'm very glad that I'm not ever going to live 900 years. Because <laughs> I'm only at 40 and I'm like, oh, 80 seems, wow. Uh, but anyways, um, <laughs> maybe they'll have bionic stuff by then. Back to the story though, okay? So we're, we're back to the story. You see the timeline. God sends a flood. Genesis 6, 6 to 8. Nope, here we go. Genesis 7, 17 to 23, the flood continues for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. So here we are. All that is left is righteous Noah and his family. They're the ones saved in the ark. So, is this the plan of redemption? Well, Genesis 8:21. Right. Well, first, so Genesis 9:1 to 3. God bless Noah and his sons. So they're coming out of the ark, and He says, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth." And he goes on to say, it in verse 3. I skipped verse 2 there for sake of time. I give you everything. Do you recognize those commands? Yeah, he spoke them, right? Who did he give them to first? Adam. Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. This is maybe, this is redemption maybe? Is this going to be it? It's the start over. It's the do over, right? So we're going to start over and he's, go- he, he's wiped out all the wickedness. We have righteous Noah and his family that are left. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them everything, every advantage to do it right. But then in 8.21, we we hear God say this of man's heart, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He could see the evil that had infected us. It was something that mankind couldn't overcome. And right away is by by chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, we see Noah is, uh, there we go, he's drinking wine, he gets drunk, and he lays naked in his tent. And the story goes on to show that his younger son comes in and sees him naked and goes back and tells his brothers, and then they come in backwards and cover his shame. Noah wakes up, and guess what he did? I mean, can you imagine doing that? Don't visualize it. But uh, not in here. That's awkward. But anyways, imagine, like, that happening to you. How is Noah going to respond? I mean, your kids have now come in. You're drunk. You're naked. You're exposed. You're going to feel ashamed. You're probably going to have apologize to them, right? Noah doesn't do that. We see Noah blames his younger son, curses him actually. This is righteous Noah, and we're watching what? The exact same pattern that we saw in Genesis one, or one to three. The exact same pattern is, 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 is repeating itself. We see God giving them the command, we see God giving them everything, every advantage, and we see Noah right away is turning into sin, and just like Adam, What did Adam do when he sinned? Who did he blame? Did he take ownership? No. He blamed who? Eve, Eve, his wife. Coward, eh? Don't we all do that sometimes, though? She made me do it. He made me do it. My circumstances made me do it. Anyone but me made me do it. (laughs) Right? Noah did the same thing. His son made him do it. His son was the cause of his shame and drunkenness you know that that doesn't go very far. Anyways. Oh. I'm going to skip forward because i got to come back to this anyhow. And I'm going to jump to the end. Because the next one is going to be the Tower of Babel. So we go from there. Wickedness is going to increase. We're going to go to the Tower of Babel. And we're going to pick up on that next week because I want to park on this. Did you hear any of these answers this morning? Origin. how did we get here? Anyone? God created, created. okay, that's good, I like that. These are, they're they're easy, I'm trying to get them easy, some of them are maybe a little more complex, but it's important that we understand these. By the way, more so, remember, the way we properly answer questions and, and properly hold the Word of God is by understanding what it says and then obeying it. We apply it to our lives. That's, that's how we hold to this in the right way. So anyhow, origin, how did we get here? God created us, God created us. okay. Did anyone get answers to purpose? Why are we here? Yeah, I'm hearing dominion. Okay, say, say some more. Procreate. Procreate, that's part of it. Yeah, be fruitful, multiply. Bring glory to God. That was one. Absolutely, yes. Relationship. God wanted us to love him. Okay, we've just said a bunch of things of what our purpose is for being here. Okay, so we have some purpose already. Morality. What defines right and wrong? Okay, so sin is bad. Who did God say? There we go. So who defines? Maybe that's a better question. Who defines right or wrong? God. See, these are important things because what the world will tell you on morality, who defines or what defines right and wrong, they will say no one can tell you what's right and wrong. That's the naturalistic and the postmodern view is no one can tell you what is right and wrong because right and wrong aren't a thing. They're social constructs. So you decide what's right and wrong. But Scripture already tells us what happens when man becomes a law in and of themselves. It always brings on a consequence. So who defines what is right and wrong? God. And how do we know? He speaks. He has spoken, exactly, that's how we know. All right, this is good. Uh, what about destiny, where are we headed? Was there anything on that? Redemption, there we go, I don't know, who said that? We got some solid grade A students over here, that was quick. All right, redemption. So we don't know the full plan yet, unless you already know your Bible. We don't know the full plan, but we already know we're headed towards redemption, the undoing of the curse. And then lastly here, what about identity? Did you hear about who we are? Image of God, God's children. We are God's special creation. Had all of those down. That's wonderful, Okay any yep and we're and we're image bearers the imago dei now what about god did we learn anything about who god is Immortals. immortal unchanging, unchanging. unchanging. all powerful eternal. eternal anything else loving is he personal or impersonal personal, personal. personal. creator shares power. oh shares power what's that? Merciful. Merciful. Yeah, there we go. Well, this is great. Okay. And what's the problem with the world that we're living in? Who created that problem? Satan. Satan. Well, then who did? He, who? he did. You're right. He tempted, but then who actually did the act? Eve. Eve. Adam, and Eve. Adam and Eve. So mankind. And what's the solution? God. God. I had the answer on there technically, but right now we only know him as one thing. What's his name? Serpent Crusher, isn't that a cool name? Yeah, Yeah. right in the beginning, all we know is he's a serpent crusher. He's gonna be awesome. All right, if these answers are true, and this is for me, this is for you, how does it mean we should live? If all of the things we just yelled out were true to those answers, what does that mean for you today when you leave here? That's a question that I think all of us should meditate on and answer for ourselves because we'll be accountable to God for how we live it out. Amen.